are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back. Uh, I guess for those of you who have been following along for a while and joining me on this thing through um, Luke, you could probably say welcome back to me. It has been a long two or three weeks um, and a very busy two or three weeks. I had every intent of taking the um, my recording stuff and doing a um, some podcasts while I was on vacation last week um, or two weeks ago. I'm sorry. And that's how long it's been. Um, it's all running together for me. But for those of you who might have a few kids, a handful of kids, you know that on vacation, uh, they are early risers, anxious to get the day started, and they are wanting to go to bed late. And so finding the time to be able to do it with 10 kids uh, is, you know, was difficult. Um, and so I wasn't able to actually get that done. And then we've had a lot going on, some complications with cows and cars and all various sorts of stuff, and so trying to get down here to come and do a podcast where I can just kind of break free from everything and just really focus on this, which is how I, I enjoy to do this or I like to do it, um, has been problematic for me. And so um, while they might be uh, reasons, I don't want to use them as excuses. And so we're going to get in, you know, continue this on and go right through Luke chapter 5 and get right into this. If, if this is your first time, Listening to this, uh, whether it's listening to this series on Luke or just listening to me in general on this, uh, welcome. I'm, I'm glad that you're joining us. If you've been following for a while, then uh, welcome back to this. We're going to get right into it because we've got a lot to go through and a lot of verses that we have to go through. It says in verse 1, chapter 5, in Luke, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let, your nets, uh, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets." And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And we're going to stop it right there and just kind of break down the situation, what's going on. So here's these people. The crowd was pressing in on Jesus on the shore. And so he's like, I got to get back just away from this so that people aren't trying to, to, uh, to press in on me. And um, so he, he gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he casts out just a little bit from it. And he begins to teach the people from just a little bit outside of the shore. And then I think what's interesting is um, uh, going into this, he says, He asked them to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, when he got done teaching 
the, the crowd that was there, obviously they couldn't follow him, right? Um, he was with the disciples and he was in these boats and just kind of get this mental picture that he's out on this lake, this large lake that's out there, um, Gennesaret, and, and these people are standing there and he gets done teaching them and then he, he has further instructions for those who are with him in the boat. And I think in life that, that oftentimes comes together. Jesus is going to teach everyone. Right? There's going to be, God's always working on everybody's life all at once. He's doing everything that he can. But there's the people that are in the boat with him, the people who are abiding with him, the people who are, are, have, have sacrificed and have, have um, given up their lives and are with him in the boat. He's got further instruction for you, but that further instruction is going to call you into the deep waters of life. The deep waters of going there with Christ. And, and here's what I mean by that. On the shore, things are usually comfortable. They're safe. Um, you don't have a whole lot of risk involved when you're out, out on the shoreline. You know, even if you're out into the, the ankle deep water. But when you go out into the deep, there's a lot more unknowns, a lot more variables, a lot more chance and risk and danger that's going to be there. And there's even just uh, a tendency to have a little bit more solidarity to it. The solitude that's there in which it's going to be a smaller group of people that are going to be in the deep with you. There's a place for the large crowds. There's a place for being able to, to minister and to fellowship and to be with, with people. But the deep, the deep is going to be one of the greatest sifters of fellowship in our life. It's going to be where your circle is going to be. It's those people who take you deeper into the presence of Christ. It's those people who are going to go through battle with you. And he says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And I think it's fascinating that Peter's response to him was that we toiled all night and we caught nothing. And Jesus is, is saying, but what are you going to do when I've asked you to do it and I'm with you? Because the thing is, is that when Jesus is with us, we have nothing that we need to fear. We have nothing that we cannot do. What does Philippians 4.13 say? It's one of the classic passages that many people memorize today and we quote, but I think very few people actually understand. When he says that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You see, when we are abiding with Christ, when Christ is in us and we are in him, there is literally Nothing that is commanded in God's word that we cannot do. In 1 Peter 1, and I always get it mixed up. It might be 2 Peter 1. Um, <clears throat> let me do a quick search for it. I'm actually on 1 Peter 1. I was where I was reading on on my phone. So I'm trying to do a quick search. Um, and it actually is going to be 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You want to just summarize and encapsulate that for you. It essentially says that everything that you need for a life of godliness has been given to you through Jesus Christ. You have no excuse you have no reason as to why you cannot endure through temptations in a way that honors and pleases God. You have no excuse as to why you can't conquer that vice. You have no excuse as to why you can't do what God has commanded us to do, which is essentially to be the image bearers of Jesus Christ unto perfection. You see, you've got a lot of people today who are trying to tell us that we can't do that. And it's probably because they haven't cast themselves out into the deep waters yet. They might be in the shallow end. They, maybe they're knee deep. Maybe they're waist deep. 
haven't submerged because they don't understand the fullness of what the gospel has purchased us. In Ezekiel, there's this picture of when God is unveiling the temple to him and, and that, that in and of itself is a whole other story. Um, but God's unveiling this temple to him and, and he, he goes to the threshold of this temple and, and water begins to fill this place and um, it comes up to his ankles. And, and the angel tells him, he says, cry out for another measure. So he cries out and says, give me another measure. And so that measure then fills up the temple even to the knees. And then he, he cries out again. He's told to cry out for another measure. He cries out again. He's waist deep. And all of a sudden, he cries out for another one. He's like swimming in this water that has filled the, the, the temple that's there. And he's swimming in it. And, and, and when I look at that analogy of what's going on in Ezekiel, it's just, it's this amazing picture of what it's like in that journey that we have of looking more and more and more and more like Christ. Of that when we cry out for the deep, when we cry out from the deep, if you will, that he gives us another measure. But you have to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to go deeper with him. And if you're just wanting to stay in the shallow ends of the kiddie pool, then you are never going to experience the fullness of the divine nature. And that's what Second Peter 1 is telling us. It's his divine power has given us divine ability to put on the divine nature of Christ. To walk as he walked. This concept of I'm just a sinner saved by grace who will always be a sinner saved by grace. I'll never be able to look like Jesus. I'll never be able to walk like him. I'll never be able to do what Jesus did. I'm just going to tell you, that is not the gospel. It's an incomplete message and I would argue that it's a heretical message. It is not what the Lord has given to us because he has given us all things that pertain to a life of being God-like. In fact, we are commanded of it. 1 John 2.6 says that if um, anyone says he abides in him, he ought to walk in the same way which he walked. And then Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. We have the, the um, command to be an imitator of God. Holy in all of our conduct, as 1 Peter 1 talks on in verse 12 through 15, that stretch of passages right there. The command is there, but it's only going to be there for those who are willing to go into the deep. And let's, let's look at what happens. He, he puts out to the deep, and Simon says, we labored all night, and we caught nothing. And Jesus says, that's because you did it in your own strength. Trying to imitate Christ in your own strength You'll be a miserable replica, but God knows how to imitate himself. And if it's God who's working in us and through us for him, he knows how to imitate himself. That's what Philippians 2.12 is all about when he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you, Jesus knows how to imitate Jesus. The issue is, is that oftentimes we stand in the way of letting him do it. The ability is there. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And if you live by the flesh, you'll never imitate Christ. But if you let the spirit have the domain, if you let the spirit have control, if you let the spirit, if you walk by the spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But you have to walk in the spirit. It's the only way. And the spirit is out in the deep. And that's where we got to go. And so Peter says, we labored all night. 
We caught nothing. Jesus says, because you did it in your own strength. But at my word, if you do what I tell you to, if you do it in accordance with my word, with me in the boat with you, let's see what happens. He says, and when they had done this, when they obeyed the word, when they heeded the word of Jesus, and Jesus was in the boat with them. It says they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled even to their partners. Say, guys, come over and help, please. Our boats are sinking because of the amount of fish that we have. This isn't a health, wealth, prosperity. This is a possibility of the gospel of what he can do in our lives when we choose to heed his word. And we choose to let Jesus in the boat with us. And we choose to allow him to command us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. The life of Christ will be with us. And my favorite thing out of all of this, my favorite thing in this passage is what Peter says. He says when he saw it, it says he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You see, all the other guys were worried about the fish. And I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preachers that are out there today. They're worried about the fish. They're, they're concerned with what can we get from Christ. Man, praise God, we've got that jet. Praise God, we've got the fancy house. Praise God, we've got the cars. Praise God, we got all the fish. But Peter, Peter didn't care about the fish. Peter turns his attention. He didn't care about the boat sinking. He didn't care about the profit they were going to make off these fish. He didn't care about he just witnessed a miracle. All he cared about was the fact that he was unworthy to be in the presence of Christ. That he was a man unworthy to even tie the strap of his sandals, as John the Baptist said. It makes me think of, of Luke 17.10 in this whole thing, starting in verse 7, where he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? See, you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, Peter didn't worry about the eating and drinking. He didn't worry about the fish. He didn't worry about the dangers of being in the deep. He didn't worry about the dangers of the fish sinking the boat. The only thing he said is, I am an unworthy servant. I'll do whatever I'm commanded. Let me just ask you, are you more worried about what Christ can give to you? Or are you more worried about how worthy Christ is? Are you one who's Peddling with the fish? Are you one who's on your knees just completely bewildered at the fact that Jesus would even care about you? That he would even call you to be his servant? Which, which one do you find yourself more of? Because when you go into the deep, it's going to sift your emotions. It's going to sift your allegiance. It's going to sift who you really are and what you're really about. This going out into the deep is not going to be easy. Going out into the deep is not going to be something that is going to um, just be a cakewalk. Going into the deep is going to get you to face who you really are and what you really care about. And sometimes I think that scares people. 
It's not the water itself. It's not the dangers of being out there. It's the dangers of having to really find out who you really are. And for Peter, we find out what he really cared about, and it wasn't the fish. We find out what the disciples, what a lot of them really cared about, what came as first to them. And it's not necessarily bad things. The story of Mary and Martha, right? Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, similar place as Peter. And Martha was busy serving. She was doing some good things. But Jesus says that Mary chose the better portion. See, a lot of people, I think, are are out there and they might even just still be in the shallows. They're just content to say, oh, I'm just thankful that Jesus even just saved me. um, And we're just going to leave it at that. And then there's those people who sit in the boat with Jesus because he's out in the deep. And they want to go deeper. But there's danger there. There's fear there. And sometimes you, you swim back to shore. But the reality is, is the deep water is going to be what sifts a person. It finds out what you're really made of and refines you. And for Peter, it did. And it goes on just because I, I could sit and talk about that concept for a, a lengthy amount of time because it's one of my favorite ones and I'm really actually trying to rein myself in from these things and choose my words carefully on this of how deep I go on it. No pun intended on that. But I'm going to keep going on this one because I do have a lot. He says in verse 9, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were also fishermen. They were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And the Greek word implies anthropoi. It means to men and women. So it's not just a relegated to only men can get saved. He says, look, here's the deal. You're going to be catching fish, right? That's what this analogy is. But when you truly grasp the gospel and the new covenant is opened, because Hebrews 9 says the covenant, the new covenant was not opened up until the death of the one who initiated it happens. Okay, So until Jesus died on that cross, until there was no more life in his body, the old covenant reigned. The covenant that God made with Moses and the people of Israel, the Jewish people that he made back at Mount Sinai, that covenant remained. Until a death annulled it. Alright? And that comes into play even a little bit towards the end of this chapter. But once he died, and he resurrected from the dead, it says that he was going to send the helper. Alright? And that helper was going to be that which dwelt in them and allowed them to have access to God and dwell with him. So as John 15 says, Jesus says, I in you and you in me. It's this harmonious thing that takes place in which the spirit of Christ comes into you and you come into this, the, the person of Jesus Christ. That's why it says that in Ephesians 1 and 2, we are seated with him in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. And so we are in him and he is in us in this harmonious force that is going on in the spiritual realm by faith. And he says that, um, do not be afraid, from now on you will be catching men. So when this takes place, he says, you're going to go out there and it's not going to be about fish anymore. That's not what it's about. This was just an illustration, guys. Please don't run with it too far. This is simply just... An illustration to show you that when I am with you, all things are possible. And you're going to go out there and your motivation is no longer going to be what I can give to you. As much as what you can give to me. Go catch men and increase the kingdom of heaven. And that's our mission. He goes on he says, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. 
I talked about this previously, and this word for everything in the Greek actually translates to everything. (laughs) it's, It's not something in which some things can still be left on the altar. This is everything. Some of these men, if not many of these men, were married. They had kids. They had jobs. They had livelihoods. They had dreams. They had ambitions. They probably had things that they wanted to do. Some of them had probably were doing the things that they wanted to do. We're going to find out one, Matthew or Levi, in the text. He was probably a very wealthy tax collector. He had much of what he wanted, much like the rich young ruler. And yet he was still lacking something. The one thing that mattered. The one thing that could give him peace at night. And that was salvation in Christ. And he knew it because as soon as Jesus called him, he left everything as well to follow him. You see, this is why I get so upset at many of the altar calls, quote unquote, that are given today. Because it's all about Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you to to be with him. If you just ask him into your heart, he'd save you. You won't have to go to hell and he'll give you good things. He'll, He'll produce fish in your life, right? That's not the altar call for Christ. The altar call for Christ is you need to go and sell the ownership of your life, relinquish the claim of your life and give it to me. Your dreams, your ambitions will no longer be your dreams and ambitions unless I say so. That money that you get is no longer going to be yours. It will be mine to do with what I say. It's called being Lord. Does Jesus love us? Absolutely. We know that God so loved the world, right? That's why he was willing to let his son come and pay the penalty, the price that we deserved. So that by his stripes we could find completeness or oneness or wholeness. Or as translated, be healed. We know that he loves us. And it's love of Christ that compels us or that controls us. But the first and foremost step of anything is is where Romans 10 says that you must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and you will be saved. You don't find the fullness of Christ in your life until you have given the fullness of yourself to him. That's the gospel message. Luke 9, 23, we'll get to it um, you know, at some point, where he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. You cannot follow him until you are sacrificed on the altar. You can't do it. So this concept of leaving everything, we, the problem, we've negotiated the terms of salvation and the Bible doesn't do that. Christ doesn't do that. You don't get to negotiate the terms of the cross. They've been set. It was the blood of Christ that brought about your salvation and it will be your life that brings about salvation into your life. We've tried to reduce it so that we can get numbers. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. It wants us to go into the deep. It doesn't want us to be a mile wide and an inch deep in our churches. It wants us to be deep. And if we're not wide, so be it. You know, Jesus at the time of his death for all the things that he did for as long as he did, those three years of ministering to people, of healing the sicknesses and cleansing demons and feeding people's um, bellies miraculously. You know, at the time of his death, we know that there was only about 120 followers who remained with him. 120 out of millions that he ministered to. Who cares if our churches reach the multitudes? Because if they're not going deeper, then it doesn't matter. God calls us to the deep. 
Going on in verse 12, it says, While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. This goes into Leviticus 14. You can go read about it. It says, But now even more the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And I, and I love this passage right here because it just shows that Jesus cared nothing about reputation. He cared nothing about his, his following and the numbers that he had and how much they adored him and loved him and wanted him to, to be king. He would retreat to desolate places and he would say, look, I'm going and I'm going to go spend some time with my father. But I think it's interesting that he heals this guy's leprosy, which is this flesh-eating disease, right? There's nothing that you can really do about it. It's going to destroy you. It's going to, to eat away your flesh until there is nothing more, much like sin. And he comes and he cleanses this guy and he tells him, he says, look, you're still under the law. I haven't died yet. New covenant hasn't come in. You're still under the law, which means that you need to, as Leviticus 14 says, you need to go... And you need to go offer um, yourself before the priest to make an offering as a proof to them of your cleansing. You don't need the proof because you know you've been cleansed. I don't need the proof because I know I cleansed you. They need the proof because it's still what the law of Moses commands. So even here, even though this is Jesus, he still is honoring the law. He's still honoring Torah and the requirements of the law simply because the new covenant has not been established yet. Okay? That's important to remember. And so going on, he says, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal, which I, I just think is a really... Um, interesting thing where Jesus is sitting there and it specifically identifies it says but the power of God was with him I, I think it's interesting it shows a distinction there and if you want more on that go listen to my Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 podcast it says and behold some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus but finding no way to bring him in Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we've already identified, um, I think it was earlier on, or maybe I'm getting confused with Matthew in the study that I'm doing with my kids right now. And I think that I am. We haven't actually gotten into it yet. But in, in Matthew, um, now I don't remember the passage of where it was, but he gives Peter and the apostles the authority to forgive sins. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed. Because by faith, you believe that I'm the Christ. And through that, you have authority on this life also to forgive sins. And then John 20, 22, after he's resurrected and he's been glorified, the first thing he does is he says he breathes on them and receives the promised Holy Spirit. And then he says, the sins of any that you forgive will be forgiven and the sins of any you withhold will be withheld. He gives them the authority to forgive sins. Does that make me God? No, it doesn't. Does that make the apostles God? No, 
It doesn't. It simply is meaning they have the authority of God. And that's what's being instilled right here. Jesus has the authority of God. The power of God is with him. The authority of God is with him. And he has the authority to forgive sins. Same way as we do through Christ. It doesn't make me God. It simply means that I have the authority of God. And we have it through Christ. He says this. Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. Glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary Things today. Now, a couple things I want to break down in this. One I've already talked about a little bit about just because Jesus had the authority to forgive sins does not make him equal with God as they supposed. That's what they thought was the blasphemy is that he was making himself equal with God um, because he said he had the authority um, to forgive sins. We know scripture says that even as Christians, we have the authority to do that. And you could even relegate and say, you know, as some would do. That was just the apostles. That doesn't transfer to us. I would argue with that. But even on that, does that make the apostles God? Because Jesus gave them authority to forgive sins? Of course not. We have the authority of God as Christians because of Jesus Christ. So I've already talked about that one. Here's the other one. Um, One, every one of us has friends and family and, and people in our life who they got struggles they got things going on in their life. And maybe they're just weak. Maybe they just, maybe they just don't have the strength to keep going. Maybe they don't have the ability. Because they're spiritually in their soul. They're laying paralyzed on a bed. And they just can't move anymore. They can't do anything. Let me just ask you. What kind of friend are you to them? Are you the friend that's just going to sit by their bedside? Put that cool cloth on their face? Get them some drink, get them something to eat, take care of them, massage their feet, change their bandages, you know, things like that. And I'm talking about proverbially with the spiritual soul. Are you the friend that's going to take them to Jesus on their behalf? Are you the friend who's going to go out of your way, pick them up on their bed, carry them to the feet of Jesus, and no matter what you have to do to get them to Jesus, you're going to bust through somebody else's roof if you must. Dig through that thing and lower them down to him so that they can find healing. Which kind of friend are you? You see, how we do that is we battle that in prayer. We take them to Jesus on their behalf. We go to Jesus on their behalf and we intercede for them. No matter the cost, no matter what it is. In James 5, makes me think of this passage. In verse 15, it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It's the exact same concept. It's just on some levels, there's going to be a physicality to it. And on many levels, there's going to be a spirituality to it. The point is, is what kind of friend are you? 
Are you the one who's just going to tend to a friend but leave Jesus out of the equation? Are you going to tend to them and bring them to Jesus when they feel incapable of going to them themselves? And I love this picture because here's these four friends who are unlike the friends that Job. Job's friends, they came and they they tended to Job. They sat with him for seven days in silence because they saw the pain that he was in. They four four um, uh, basically abandoned their life and they abandoned everything they had going on. And they traveled to Job because they heard of this as his four his four friends, maybe his three friends. Um, and they sat with him in seven days, just in complete silence. But they left God out of the equation. And here you've got these four friends who they bring them to they bring him to the feet of Jesus because they know we can't do what he can. And they had faith that Jesus could heal him. And let me just ask you, do you have faith that Jesus can heal your friends? Your friend, your family member, whoever it might be that's got, uh, is burdening your heart. Do you have faith that Jesus can heal them? And if so, then take them to Jesus. Labor in prayer on their behalf. Whether it takes a day or ten days or a month or longer, labor in prayer for them. Even Elijah, as it goes on in James 5, it talks about Elijah was a man with a like nature as ours. He prayed fervently that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. He prayed fervently that it would rain and it did rain. But it wasn't just a one-time prayer as an easy fix. Remember, he had to stay on his knees and seven different times he sent his servant to go look to see if rain was coming. He labored on his knees until he saw the evidence that God was responding as the, the cloud the size of a man's hand. And he says, that's it. We better prepare for rain because it's coming. We like to see the answer to prayer, but we don't like to talk about the laboring in prayer. And I'll admit, I'm, I'm, I'm not the greatest at laboring in prayer. I throw up my prayers and they don't get answered. Sometimes I lose hope in it. Sometimes I get discouraged in it. But my failures doesn't, doesn't um, dictate God's ability or inability. Your faith is what does that. My faith is what does that. The prayer of faith can raise a person. Listen, what did he say? He says, when he saw their faith, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. It wasn't even just that he healed him physically, it's that he cleansed him spiritually. And oftentimes, sin is the culprit to any physical illness that we've got. I'm not saying that it's all the time. I'm not saying the word, the word of faith or that health, wealth, prosperity type thing. I'm just simply saying that scripture does detail that sometimes sin is the culprit for our physical ailments. And he goes on and he says um, in verse 24, this is the other point I want to bring up. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, here's what strikes me as interesting about that. Jesus commands him to do the very thing that he couldn't do. This was a paralytic. This was somebody who couldn't rise up. This is somebody who couldn't pick up his own bed. And here's what's interesting. Is he tells the person, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, let me just tell you. He's going to Jesus, being he. 
He is going to ask you to do something that is impossible in your own strength before you really see the working power of God at work in your life. Action will always precede healing. Brokenness will always precede the blessing. If you go through scripture, you're going to find that brokenness always preceded the blessing. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two guys, it says they sat down and when he broke the bread, it says their eyes were opened. You're going to see it time and time again that a breaking must happen before the blessing all culminated in the person of Jesus Christ that his body had to be broken before the blessing of heaven could come. And in the same way, action will precede God's response. He will ask you oftentimes, if not every time, to do something that in your own strength is impossible. But that is where faith comes in. Because when you choose to move forward in faith, it was impossible, let me just say this, it was impossible for those walls of Jericho to fall down simply because a tribe of people walked around it for seven days. That wasn't possible, and yet they did it because they were asked to do it. At his word, they let down their nets, right? When you choose to move forward in faith, we toiled all night, Lord. This is impossible. In my own strength, we didn't get anything. And God says, why don't you try mine? Let down your nets with me in the boat at my word. When I tell you to do it, let it down and see what happens. And let me just tell you, Christian. Let down your nets. Because there's something probably in your life even right now that you're facing. Some temptation, some struggle, some vice, some addiction. Maybe it's financial issues. I don't know what the issues might be in your life. But there's something that is those 75 foot walls of Jericho. That is standing right looking you in the face. And you're looking up at those walls and saying this is impossible. It's not going to happen. I don't know how this person will ever give their life to you Jesus. I don't know how this person can find healing Jesus. I don't know how this person would ever change. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're in a situation in which you're a wife and your husband just is not doing what he's supposed to. And in your own strength, you've tried to change him. Let me just ask you, have you given it to Jesus in full, not in part? Have you trusted him with this situation? Say, no matter what this is going to turn out, no matter how this is going to look like, I know what my job is in this. And that is to love him and to respect him, as 1 Peter 3, 1 says. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word when they see the respectful and pure conduct of their wives. Jesus, I'm going to give myself to you. You use me however you see fit in accordance with your word. And I trust you that you are going to work on his behalf. And I'm going to labor in prayer and take him to you daily, moment by moment. And I won't give up. Have you tried that? Because that's what we're talking about. Jesus is asking us to walk out the impossible before the impossible will walk out in us. He goes on in 27. He says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. A simple illustration of what the gospel call is. Jesus is saying, follow me. 
And here's the cost. He didn't compromise it. He didn't relegate it to say, hey, just keep your tax collecting business. Keep doing what you're doing and just try to follow me from afar. Take advantage or take observance of what I'm doing. And then just try to do your best to imitate it. That's not what he said. He said, follow me. And Matthew knew the cost. He knew exactly what it was that that entailed. Because when a rabbi came up to you in Jewish culture and said, follow me, he knew what it meant. And whether he hesitated, whether he didn't, I don't know. The point is, is that he got up and he followed him. He left everything. The call of Christ on our life is not partial abandonment. It's full. That's the gospel call. Anything short of that is not the call of Christ. He goes on and says, And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me break this down real quick. Matthew is... Um, just enthralled with following Jesus. Probably just completely um, taken back by the fact that Jesus even called him at all. He knew the wicked man that he was. And so he leaves everything. He follows him. And the only thing he knows to do is say, Hey, Jesus, I want to give you this great feast. I'm going to invite my friends. I'm going to invite... Uh, you know, I mean, they're tax collectors. Is that okay? Um, I'm going to invite these people because this was my circle. And I want them to come and meet you too. I want them to maybe get the call. I want them to know about who you are. But here's the thing. Did Jesus meet with them to condone or to condemn? No. Jesus wasn't there to condemn their actions. He wasn't there to condone their actions or to tolerate their actions. He was there to lead them to repentance. And this is something we miss today. Because I think sometimes we have friends who are not following Christ. And we just try to be patient and tolerate them. And we condone their actions Jesus didn't condone anyone's actions that went against the, uh, against the glory of God. Jesus didn't condone, but he didn't go there to condemn either. He went there to lead them to repentance. Because it's not okay to leave people the way that they are when we leave their presence. They should be changed to some degree. They should be changed when the light comes and shines on the darkness. Now here's the other thing. A lot of people use the expression today when they call Jesus the friend of sinners. Let me just tell you, that is blasphemous. And here's why. Because it violates the teaching of the Word of God. Blasphemy in and of itself, of of its most basic definition, is to make a railing accusation against something or someone. And so blasphemy, in this case, is going to be stating that the Word of God is not true. And here's what I mean by that. Nowhere in scripture does it ever call Jesus a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors. And we don't have to look very far in scripture to be able to find where it says that he was called that. Jesus never called himself nor does scripture say that he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this is very important so listen up carefully. In verse 34 of Luke chapter 7. It says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, notice, it wasn't Jesus who said it. It wasn't the disciples who said it. It was the Pharisees and the the scribes. It says, and you say, look at him. 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you might say, well, well, that's because he was acting like that. Let me just tell you. Psalm 25, 14 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and who obey his covenant. Keep his covenant and obey his testimonies. John 15, 14 says, you are my friend if you do what I command you. You see, scripture details that to be a friend of Christ, you must actually be doing what Christ says to do. Well, last I checked, tax collectors and sinners in their unrepentant state, are not doing what Christ tells them to do. The only way to be a friend of Christ is to be doing what Christ says to do. And sinners, unless they're led to repentance, are not that. Hence the term sinner. So please do not get confused and think that Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He was called that. Jesus is a friend of those who obey him. Because that's what scripture says. To say otherwise is to blaspheme against the word of God. So be careful in the words that you choose. The other thing that's talked about here is that he called them to repentance. Jesus did not condemn and condone them. However, he did not sit there and just say, um, hey guys, you know what, let's just eat. Let's just not even talk about sin and holiness and let's just not let's just enjoy one another and let's just sit and let's just have a meal together now jesus called their sin out the table he didn't condemn it and say you know what you're all going to die i'm going to destroy you which is what condemning is but he didn't come to simply just say let's just live it up together and enjoy one another and maybe god will lead you to repentance No, he called their sin on the table over and over and over. The other thing is that this righteous is referencing the self-righteous. It's not referencing people who who, um, didn't need to have any need to repent whatsoever. And how do I know that? Because Romans 3.10 says that no one is righteous, no, not one. Now, isn't that interesting? That Jesus, or that the New Testament, Paul, by the hand of Paul, in Romans 3, quoting an Old Testament passage that has now transcended into the New Testament for all of mankind, it says, no one is righteous. No, not one. So if that is true, then you tell me how Jesus is saying that there are people who are righteous. Because that would seem a contradiction. Instead, what we can understand from the premise of this and the context is, is that he's referencing those who are self-righteous. Those who feel that they have a righteousness in and of themselves because of what they do. Not because of their position in Christ. That's who he's referencing. And that's why oftentimes with the Pharisees, he didn't really seek to bring them out to the deep. He didn't really seek to spend a lot of time instructing them. Because they were self-righteous. And he says, to the self-righteous, my word will fall on deaf ears. It'll just simply hit that soil, that pathway, and the devil's going to come and take it away. I still sowed it. But that's not who I'm coming to call. I'm coming to call the humble, the repentant, the ones who are willing to follow me, to do what I say. That's who I'm coming to call. I'm leading sinners to repentance. And if that includes the self-righteous, then so be it. 
And then he goes on and he says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can, the, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst, the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So here's here's the premise of this one, and I would encourage you to go listen to the podcast series that I did over the book of Hebrews, primarily chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 in this regard, okay, in regard to the topic we're about to talk about. And so because I'm, I'm running a little bit short on time, this has already been a little bit longer than I was hoping it to be, but God has a reason. Essentially, this is what it's talking about. The Old Testament had, or I would say the Old Covenant that God made with his people had a certain set of rules and laws and rituals and regulations, all that stuff that were accompanied and attached with that. So let's call that new wine with, I'm sorry, old wine skins that were filled with old wine. Okay. An old covenant that had old regulations attached to it. And Jesus is bringing about this parallel that says, now, now here's the deal. Common sense is going to tell you, and, and the way the people, and we don't really understand wineskins today, at least in America. We have glass jars and ceramic and you know, all that various stuff. But to them, that would, this is how they held the wine. He says, you can't take an old wineskin that's already had fermented wine in it, that's been in there, it's been used over and over and over, and you can't take that and put new wine into that and preserve either. You can't do that. And you, in the same way, you can't take a new wineskin and put fermented wine or old wine into that wineskin and preserve either. He says, you must have all things new. You can't take a new covenant and take old regulations and, and ceremonial rites and passages and laws and all those. You can't take those things and put them in entirely as they are, into a new wineskin, or you'll ruin both. And likewise, you can't take an old covenant and take new principles and put it into that, or you'll ruin both. You must have new covenant with new regulations. That's the only way to preserve it. And this is essentially what he's saying. I've got some notes written here. I actually haven't read through these. So hopefully that they are um, in accordance with this. The generality is of the firstborn, secondborn um, man. Now, you ever have uh, notes in which you have a hard time reading your own writing? Um, yeah, I can't read what that even says. The generality, I do read this. The generality is of the firstborn and the second born. If you don't know what I mean by that, I've talked about it at length, so this is your first time. Just understand, there is a concept of the first born, which is always rejected in order for the second born to be accepted of heaven. The first born often is the physical nature, and the second born is of the spiritual nature. So here's an example. You have the first born of Adam. He was the physical. Second born of Jesus. He was the spiritual. Adam is rejected. Jesus is accepted. 
You have the firstborn of the Jewish people, the secondborn of the church. One is of a physical nature, one is of a spiritual nature. One has a physical temple, one had a spiritual temple. The old has been rejected in order for the new to be established. You have Jacob and Esau. Esau, the firstborn, was rejected. Jacob, the secondborn, was accepted. The, the, the concept of Ishmael and Isaac, the Israel and the church, it's all throughout Scripture. That the firstborn or that which comes first proves the um, inabilities of the physical or of the flesh. And the secondborn proves the validity of heaven and of the spirit. And the second is always accepted and the first is rejected. It's a principle that is laced all throughout scripture. um, A thread woven through the tapestry of scripture all throughout. All you got to do is just look and observe. This is why Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. You cannot get into heaven unless you have been born of the spirit. The second born is what we're looking for. That's why it's the new covenant with new regulations, not the old. Because the old has now been rejected. Look no further than the very end of Luke 13. Whenever Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of the stones of the prophets and kills those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her brood, but you are not willing Behold, your house is forsaken. The Jews are no longer God's people. Don't buy into any of these teachings that God is still for Israel, that God is, that the Jews are still his people, because that's not the truth. The reality is, is that the church, any who come in through Jesus Christ, are his people. The heavenly Jerusalem of God no longer manifests in the physical because that covenant has now been abolished. When a person comes into Christ. You need more teaching on that? Again, go into Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. And you'll find some of that um, in that one. And so, we're just going to stop it right there. And I am hoping that I can do another one. But I'm waiting on a phone call because our car has completely um, decided it wanted to stop working. We've had issues with it over the last probably three, two or three years. Off and on, we have to replace an oxygen sensor, a mass airflow sensor. We had to replace the spark plugs, a coil pack. We had to, uh, now it's saying our catalytic converter is going out. There's all kinds of stuff we've had with it. Well, just about three days ago, my wife went to go start the car and it wouldn't turn over. Um, and then the, the gas wouldn't work on it anymore. Like you press the gas pedal on it and you get nothing. There's no power. It's just like, it's like the gas pedal has been disconnected from the engine. And that might even be just the simple fix of what it really is. But the reality is, is we've got to get it towed up to a mechanic because that's our source of transportation. And so I'm hoping to, um, do another one, but I am waiting on a phone call to see about towing that. Anyways, that might be more information you wanted to know. Um, but welcome to my life and, um, yeah. So anyways, we will continue on in Luke chapter six. It is a good one. I would encourage you to read ahead. If you're joining me on this, it is a long one. And so it's like about 50 verses roughly, and it's going to take a while to get through it. So with that said, I'm already over 50 minutes on this one. You guys be blessed. And I look forward to being able to minister and go through the word with you guys um, and to you guys as we continue in our journey through Luke. Y'all be blessed.